professional learning, expert literacy teachers, and the type of knowledge you need to be successful in the classroom. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I am a former fourth grade teacher and instructional coach, a PhD graduate from Utah State University, a literacy coordinator for a local elementary school district, and someone who just wants to know more about reading. Welcome to this episode. I'm very excited for you to be able to listen to the the interview you're about to listen to. Um, a few back in June, I think I, I interviewed Dr. Seth Parsons uh, about a, a book that him and, and Dr. Margaret Vaughn co-edited uh, called Principles of Effective Literacy Instruction, and I, I still I still highly recommend that you go out and buy it. It, it sort of has the who's who's in literacy, giving sort of the, the state of where things are at in, in, in across the whole board of literacy. And there was a few specific chapters that really stood out um, that really stood out to me, and this chapter was one of them. And so the, the authors of the chapter are Dr. Amy Morwood and Dr. Julie Ankrum. And uh, their, their chapter is entitled Teachers as Lifelong Learners. And when I, when I read the chapter, there was, there was some really powerful things that jumped out to me about what we can, ex- about what we can expect from uh, a novice teacher as they're entering a classroom, what it means to be an expert literacy teacher, the types of knowledge an expert literacy teacher needs, and, and how to develop that at and how to develop that expertise over time. And so, so I invited those two authors to join me on the podcast to talk about what it means to be a teachers as lifelong learners. Dr. Amy Morwood is a professor of literacy education in the College of Education and Human Services at West Virginia University. And Dr. Julie Ankrum is a professor of literacy at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania. So sit tight and enjoy this conversation on teachers as lifelong learners. After the show, you can stick around for my two cents on the topic. Dr. Amy Morewood and Dr. Julie Ankrum, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so you wrote a chapter in the, the book, Principles of Effective Literacy Instruction, Teachers as Lifelong Learners. And uh, we already had Seth Parsons on the show to talk about the book, but I, I really enjoyed your chapter so much that I felt it deserved its own special spotlight. Uh, so can each of you explain a little bit of what you currently do and how you got interested in researching literacy teachers as, as lifelong learners? So I'll go first. My name's Amy Morwood and I'm at West Virginia University and I'm the program coordinator for the literacy education program. So that's where um, people come for their graduate work to get their reading specialist certification. Um, So I mostly teach graduate courses at this time, but I've taught undergraduate courses in the past as well. Some of the research that I work on right now includes um, professional development, professional learning opportunities, and what makes those effective. Uh, I'm really interested in online instruction right now. Uh, our program is completely online. And so I've, we've been online for a number of years and now um, I'm just really getting into that uh, area of, 
research. But the area that I wanted to speak most about that I think speaks to this chapter is a grant that I'm currently working on with West Virginia teachers with two of my colleagues at WVU, um, Allison Swandagen and Courtney Schimmick. So we are working on a, a grant where we work with kindergarten, first and next year, second grade teachers, uh, where they are, it's a three part grant. And um, we're working with them to enroll in the literacy education program at WVU. And then we are providing them with mentors uh, that are part of mastermind groups, which I'll speak to later, I'm sure in this podcast. And then the third part is really a statewide network that we're building of teachers. And the idea of our grant here is to have uh, really well-rounded uh, reading teachers, highly knowledgeable teachers in the classroom. So we don't expect these teachers to leave the classroom once they um, achieve their reading specialist certification, but rather to continue on in these primary grades. Um, and so I think that work really ties in with this chapter well um, from, from what I'm currently doing. That's wonderful work. Dr. Ankrum. Uh, yeah, I'm Julie Ankrum, and I am a professor at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which is in Indiana, Pennsylvania. And I coordinate the Masters in Literacy program like Amy does at WVU. Um, our program is a newly um, transitioned online only program. So we were only face-to-face -face in the past. And fortunately, I collaborate a lot with Amy on work in online instruction. So that's helped me a lot with this transition and it's helped our faculty and our students a lot. I also consult with teachers and administrators in local school districts to support teachers in developing effective instructional practices. So that lifelong learning piece comes in there in my work with the schools um, and the teachers. But when I was an undergraduate student, I remember my very first teacher education course and the woman who taught the course was so enthusiastic. She loved teaching elementary school, but she also loved teaching in undergraduate programs at Michigan State University, that's where I was little shout out. She made a big uh, announcement at the beginning that you must be a lifelong learner to be a good teacher. And that has stuck with me all through my profession. It's essential. And so I've been interested in that construct of lifelong learning since the very beginning. How do I become a lifelong learner myself? And then as I became involved in education preparation programs, how do I promote lifelong learning for my students? That's, that's wonderful. Um, I, I teach a couple sections of an undergraduate uh, literacy course, and I was, I was talking to my students last night, and I, I was saying, you know, this course, we're trying to cram in so much in 15 weeks. We're trying to give you just a foundation, and it's, it's, it's just barely enough to get you rolling in the, in the classroom. I tried to give them a pitch of, as you become a teacher, to find good sources that you can learn from so you can continually learn. And, and you open in your chapter, you quote uh, Barbara Darling Hammond, who I just, if, if Barbara Darling Hammond speaks, I try and listen. I really respect her work. Um, and she says, there was then and still is now a too common belief that if you had a good undergraduate education, you could go and teach, but there's so much more to learn. And so she's arguing that uh, an undergraduate uh, teaching program isn't really going to prepare a teacher fully for the, the rigor of the classroom and for the needs of students to really give robust literacy instruction. So um, how, how should we be thinking about the education that a, an undergraduate or a teaching program can provide and, and what competencies could a novice teacher expect when they, when they enter a classroom? 
Well, when you were speaking, Jake, um, earlier about what you said to your class last night or earlier this week, I thought, oh, no, that's what I'm going to say for this next part here on EPPs. But I think you hit the nail on the head, right? We're giving a really good foundation in those um, early courses and and in those initial programs. Um, and they're doing a wonderful job setting that foundational work for us. But we have to recognize that we're a profession and that we keep learning. And so we, we, when we put ourselves in that professional level, we think about other professions and we don't look at them and expect them to stop learning either, right? So um, I think when we think about our um, initial CERT pro, uh, programs, we're getting a lot of information on different content areas. We're getting a lot of information within just literacy courses, uh, but it's a breadth of information. And that lifelong learning takes our experiences and, um, and, and continues to evolve what we're able to do and how we work with kids to have them become better readers and writers. Um, I think that the foundational knowledge is spread across content, pedagogy and understanding curricular sequence. And so um, we, as we work as lifelong learners, we fill in more based on our experiences and we reflect on that and we think about well, what's worked here with this student and what didn't work with this student and how can I tweak it and make it work better with the next student, right? As far as your question about what can we expect um, pre-service teachers to know when they leave an initial cert program, I think that lifelong learning supports these foundational skills, right? Like we have to know that as students who graduate pre-service teachers. Um, and as professionals, we keep learning and, and we don't stop once the degree program stops. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities out there. We'll talk about some of these later. Many of them come through schools and districts and counties and others you're able to find on your own. Yeah, I'm just gonna add, you know, Jake, I, I say a similar, um, give a similar statement when I talk to my students, whether it's undergrad or graduate students about, I can only give you the tip of the iceberg here and work to collaboratively construct learning and understanding about what it is to teach reading, such a complex process, teach writing, you know, these complexities are, are there. And Amy's talking about a breadth and now later developing the depth of understanding by integrating personal experiences with students and how important that really is. Um, and that's the only way to deepen the knowledge is to continue learning. But we talk a lot about the competencies that teachers have to have when they begin in a classroom. But more than competencies, we have to make sure that we're helping them to develop dispositions toward learning, dispositions toward um, deep engagement with new research and new ideas and literature that's put out for them so that they can continue to read because we can't do it for them for the next 30 years. I think also, you know, at the graduate level, when teachers are coming in specifically to learn reading and writing in a reading specialist certification, for example, um, a program like that, we also need to, like Julie said, give the tip of the iceberg because we're not going to teach you everything in those courses either, but we're going to give you some experiences that help you think about these in different ways, right? We're going to structure your thinking and give you room to grow and try things in a culture or an environment that is supportive of why did you do this? What did you think? What happened? What are you thinking now? Right. Um, and that helps propel everybody forward. I, I also think that both initial cert and in graduate programs, it's our responsibility to provide 
um, access to even know what the organizations are out there that we should be looking towards when we're in our classrooms, when a question comes up, where do I go when I don't know the answer to? And, and that's helpful when you're no longer, you know, when you're in your classroom and you're no longer, you have that university or college support um, at your fingertips because you are required to go to class every Tuesday night, right? So uh, that makes a difference. You're, you don't want, we don't want teachers to be islands in their classrooms. We wanna give them these resources that they can go to that give solid research-based information for them to work with. When I reflect back to, as I've tried to be a, a, a lifelong learner and, and learn more, I feel that as I've done that, it's given me context to see to see things that are happening in my classroom in, in, in a different, or it, it provides a way to, to explain it in a way that I might not be able to if I didn't have that additional context. And uh, that, that notion of connecting people with the resources I think is, is critical. That's, that's kind of the point of this podcast is yeah. there is so, there's just a deluge of information out there if you wanna go and look at, at reading stuff, mm-hmm. but uh, it's how can you curate what's, really good and research based and how can you find actually what's what's the best what's the best stuff out there uh just for the sake of of doing something efficiently you don't have time to go through it all so you just have to find sources that you know you can trust and and rely on or or other conversations that are occurring in the field right like sometimes when you're in a classroom or school you're put on or asked to be on committees and you need additional knowledge on a specific topic, where do you go to find those things so that you can bring to the table a knowledge base that other people on the committee or stakeholders in the group may not have? And I think that's really important as far as literacy leadership and advocacy for both our teachers, our students, our schools, and our communities at large in in the area of literacy. Right. And I'm just glad that teachers are asked a lot of times to become the leaders on committees such as that. And it's really, um, they have a big job in the classroom. So those additional jobs outside of the classroom can be really challenging. And there are a lot of debates right now in the world of education and, and teachers need to be critical thinkers and go beyond the headlines and get into the actual research and understand it and be able to talk about it to guide decision-making. So it's super important to have this component of lifelong learning. Absolutely. So I think that's a, that's a great plug for continuing in potentially a master's program or a, a, a you know, reading endorsement or certification, but also just for the sake of, of learning, for the sake of learning to, to better hone your craft. Um, I, you, after in the chapter, you, you sort of open with, you contrast sort of the novice teacher and what we can expect of novice teachers entering the classroom. And, and then you, you, your, your foil of that is expert literacy teachers. Uh, so to kind of give a, a vision or a pathway of where of, of where teachers can head and and some of the benefits that that an expert literacy teacher can provide can provide her students. So uh, what what are some of the traits of expert literacy teachers, and and how how does that expertise influence student learning outcomes? Yeah, that's um, something that we've been investigating with another team um, to look at. Seth is a part of our team, and um, Allison. Ward Parsons and Margaret Vaughn, we've been working to look at what it is that expert teachers do when they teach children, for example, reading. And we know that they have this depth of knowledge about their students, as well as the art and the science of teaching. And you call it the craft, which it is. It's definitely all of that, you know. So 
because they have this depth of knowledge, they're responsive to their learners, which means that they can shift in the moment to adapt to the individual needs of the students, whether they're teaching in a whole class situation, small group situation, or even one-on-one. -on -one. And that's important because there's a lot of research that demonstrates that expert teachers group students in all of those different ways across the school day. But they do move, or I'm sorry, they do spend most of their time in small groups instruction so that they can um, differentiate the learning to meet the needs of each student. And they do this seamlessly. They move between grouping arrangements, between lesson plans, never losing time. So there's all, you know, they're all about time on task. They don't waste time across the school day so that they can pack as much instructional density, that's what Michael Presley calls it, into each of their lessons. Um, we also know that expert teachers know what each student needs because they constantly assess the students as they teach. They use both informal and formal assessments every day and throughout the day in their teaching. They um, balance instruction of skills and strategies. So it's not just a one size fits all approach to skills instruction or strategy instruction. They integrate both into um, a typical lesson and into a typical literacy block. They spend a, um, a lot of time ensuring that their students are actually reading texts and not just working on worksheets and activities to advance skills. Higher order thinking is integrated into all of their classroom discussions, as well as reading and writing activities for students. And this is true for all students, not just the advanced or accelerated learners. So expert teachers hold high expectations for all of their learners. They scaffold them when necessary and they make learning equitable. So everybody gets a chance to be engaged in high level thinking and reading and writing. That's kind of, um, an overview of all of those, but you know, I haven't listed everything that they do. Amy, have I left anything big out? No, those are the ones that we usually speak about in, in that other project. And obviously every single one of those could be a podcast episode, you know, in and of itself. And, and so the expertise that's, that's really required of teachers to do their job well, it is, it is demanding and the, the, the integration and the nuance that's required of, of its, it is something that takes time to develop. And I, I really enjoy Michael Presley's work. I think some of the stuff in the you know, mid, late 90s and, and then the early 2000s is great. But I hadn't heard that term instructional density, but that explains it so well that we're, we're not only trying to use all of our instructional time and not waste it, but we're trying to do more, do better with the time, with the time that we have. That's a fantastic term. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold yeah. on to that. Uh, so then I, I, I love to think about teacher knowledge. This is something I, I, I don't know, I, I daydream or reflect on of um, the different types of knowledge that, that teachers make. Because as you noted, Dr. Ingram, that within a, within a literacy lesson, an expert literacy teacher is, is adapting in the moment to be able to, um, to, be able to meet the needs of students. And even, even if it's a 100% scripted program, you know, there, there's plenty of folks out there that are doing, you know, slowing down or speeding. I mean, there, there's always a decision-making aspect within, within education, within teaching students how to read. Um, so then in thinking about that, what types of, of knowledge are going to influence the teacher as they're making decisions and, and why, why do they, why, how do the, each of those different types of knowledge matter in different ways? Well, Amy kind of mentioned each of those uh, a few minutes ago. She talked about content, pedagogy, and curriculum. And those are the three areas of knowledge that Shul Shulman pointed out. 
1986, I think it was, but in literacy instruction, content knowledge includes all the components of literacy, such as phonics, comprehension, writing, spelling, you know, all of those components that we teach in a typical lesson and the complexities of the processes of reading and writing and the reciprocity of those processes, right? So content knowledge also includes the developmental nature of literacy acquisition. So teachers need to know a lot about what students know and where they are in that development and knowledge of assessment so that they can use those to determine the competencies that their learners have. Amy, did I leave anything out there? Nope, you're doing great. <laughs> so, um, Pedagogical content knowledge is about understanding pedagogy, right? So how do we teach students well? What is the best instructional technique in this situation for these learners who are in front of me today, not the one that I've used every year for the past 10 years on this page of a book, for example. So um, the answer is rarely that we tell students some information and then they walk away and know it. It's how do I impart this information and how do I ensure that my students can apply it in a deep way? And expert teachers have a whole toolbox containing multiple methods for getting this information into students um, and their, um, to increase learning. And then the third type of knowledge is a curricular knowledge. And this is really important because teachers need to know what, what their students have to know in this particular year and over the course of their whole educational career. So it's understanding both the vertical and horizontal curriculum. And um, this is what we use to guide instructional goals and plans that we have. So teachers have to know how to integrate those curricular demands with the developmental abilities that their students have and then to scaffold the learning to accelerate them so that they make the gains that they need to in a year's time, basically. It's a lot. I'm exhausted just from listening to Julie talk about it. And I've, I've made this my career, right? I listen to Julie talk all the time. So, <laughs> That's your career, listening to me. My career, listening to her talk. So I think that um, in those three areas that she just described, we can see why, you know, initial cert programs have a lot to do and can't possibly get to the depth on all of those areas, right? And earlier, Julie talked about how when she speaks to her um, undergrad courses, she tries to bring in a lot of examples because they don't have those experiences in the classroom yet to tie what's being discussed to what's going on, right? And our hope, I think, is that when we have them out in the classrooms, they're going to think, oh, I remember when Dr. Ingram was talking about this and now I'm actually seeing it happen, right? And, and I know what to do with that or this, depending on what has happened in the classroom in that moment, in that teaching moment. And so, but with all of those topics that Julie just went through, right? And that we could just say, just in the area of content knowledge, and then there's pedagogical and then there's curricular, right? So, you know, we have to continue to learn. Um, and and the, the title of, of, of our uh, chapter as teachers as lifelong learners is sounds basic, but it is really the essence of everything that we have to keep going so that we can learn more about what in each of these areas. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just gonna add 
Amy and I fancy ourselves as excellent professors in education. And so we work really hard to provide video examples and simulations and all sorts of um, real applications of everything we're teaching to our undergraduates and our graduate students, for example. And Amy used the word hope. We hope that they apply it. There are times I even say things like, and if you start to use round robin reading, I hope you get a stomach ache as you do it. And when that stomach hurts, you think of me and how I told you and explained to you and showed you how ineffective this practice is, right? And they do come back and tell me with that one that they do think about it. But there are things that I know that they can't possibly, you know, we don't even know what it is for each of those students, but there are things they can't possibly draw on in the moment, but that's what lifelong learning and professional learning opportunities master's degrees, you know, continuing education, all of that brings the foundation back to them. And so we, we'll just bring that back over and over. It's just essential that teachers engage in collaborative lifelong learning as well as individual lifelong learning. I think that's fantastic. Uh, the, and the, the, just the three of those, how they work together, the, the curricular knowledge, the content knowledge, and the pedagogical knowledge of if, if one area is lacking, the other two are, are, are influenced. And, and I think that provides a useful framework for, for thinking about it. And, uh, and if, 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 if we can't teach this, our, our undergraduate students, we'll just haunt them, and to, get them to, do, <laughs> to do the right thing. So um, I, I hope- A nice synthesis of what she just yeah. said. <laughs> yeah. A little bit nicer than what I said. <laughs> so I hope for the listeners, it hasn't been uh, too, daunting so far if we say well you're undergrad you weren't really ready to go into the classroom and uh, you have to know lots of different types of knowledge and expert teachers do lots of different complex things and so um, I hope that it hasn't scared any of our scared any of our listeners off because I think the balance the rest of the episode um, is is really the 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 antidote to that or the way to um, you know mitigate what makes teaching hard so we can become we can become better uh, and, and you you classify that or you, you you talk about professional learning opportunities in your chapter as as the key to becoming a, a lifelong learner. So um, what is what is a professional learning opportunity? So I just want before I jump into what a PLO is, I just want to be super clear that Julie and I both agree that at initial cert programs are doing a wonderful job preparing teachers for the classroom. That's not what we're we're not saying that that is not occurring. Um, but what we are saying is that it doesn't end there, right? It, it continues on. And so for the listeners of this podcast, the pre-service teachers that are maybe nervous at this point, um, I don't think that they should be because I would assume that their college courses are saying to them, this isn't the end of your learning, you're gonna continue on. So I think this really would just support what's being said across the country in different initial cert programs. There is a lot to learn. Um, Julie and I are still learning as we go every day, as we read and learn new things and hear new things and research and find out different niches of things that are going on in um, reading and writing. And so I think, you know, we're not positioning ourselves as the all-knowing here. We're saying that we're all learners in education and we all continue to learn and continue to grow. And that is the challenge, but also the fun part of education. It's never, ever going to be the same job every single day. And that mm -hmm. to me is what makes it so exciting. And so going back to 
uh, the daunting task of lifelong learning. Sure, it's daunting to know all of this, but that's that's the joy of teaching and the, the, the reason we're all in it for as long as we've been in it, I think. Yes, so now- absolutely. Yeah, thanks for that. Those, thanks for that clarification, because that is, yeah, we, undergraduate programs do, and there are really great universities that are doing a great job, but expertise is, it's only acquired over with time and, and, and experience. So thank you. So that's a good segue to what I was going to say about professional learning opportunities, Jake. Thank you so much. Um, so there are, you know, when teachers learn more, students do better, right? Because teachers are able to adapt and change to what the students need that are sitting in front of them in that moment. Um, and so in our chapter, we talk a lot about Gusky's model of change, and he has three types of change um, once teachers engage and participate in professional development. And so again, we kind of think through these models of how, um, how we can apply these models to what we do and what we see going on in the field. And his um, models of change here include that the teacher changes um, and changes their practices after attending or participating in PD. Um, and that the second one is that student learning is then enhanced. And then the third one, which is the one that Julie and I probably hone in the most with our research areas, is that the teacher's beliefs and attitudes towards teaching and learning change. Um, and that's really where we see, I would say anecdotally, Julie, <laughs> I'm speaking for her here, but I'm sure she wouldn't mind, um, that that's where we see the most interesting pieces of our research occur is in that type of change, right? We all want to see student learning enhanced and we want to see teachers change their practice, but we want to get into their beliefs and attitudes on why, why they're doing what they're doing and, and how it's helping and what they're seeing when they do those things with their students. Um, as far as characteristics of effective professional learning opportunities, if you were looking for them. This has been studied for decades. Um, and what has really come out of it, and, and we've sort of touched upon this a few times, uh, the idea of duration. This isn't just like a, a one-shot deal where you're gonna sit down, learn everything you need to know, and, and, and you're gonna walk away, right? You're gonna learn something, you're gonna work on it, you're gonna implement it, you're gonna tweak it a little bit, you're gonna come back to your group, talk about it a little more. So it continues on and on. Um, that leads into collaborative environments. Most effective PLOs have groups of people, typically small groups that are working together to figure something out. There's an issue or a problem or something that they're very interested in making better in their classrooms or schools. Um, it, has to focus on teachers learning needs, right? So typically it's where teachers are seeing that they need some refinement in their skill set. And so they're working on something to make it better for kids. Um, strong leadership is a, has a huge presence in uh, effective PLOs, right? When there's leadership, whether that be teacher leadership, administrative leadership, district or county level leadership, um, that impacts how that PLO runs and functions. Just logistically and teacher buy-in when then when there's a, a precedent set that this is important in our schools and in our counties and districts then teachers know what the goal is right and finally um, when there's guided support for teachers to implement evidence-based practices and to use the student data 
um, we said it earlier, I think Jake, you may have brought it up about teachers need to know and understand, you know, they, they do these assessments, but now what do I do with these assessments, right? There's that old adage of like, I did the assessments, I threw them in my filing cabinet drawer and I haven't looked at them until I have to do them again in the spring, right? And even then I may not know what to do with how to look at the fall and the spring. So the idea is to really support teachers through these professional learning opportunities to meet their needs, to use student data, to guide their instruction so that they can differentiate and meet needs of kids. I, I think she, you covered everything, Amy, perfectly. Yeah. It's, okay. Um, so a lot to do in a professional learning opportunity. And, and so it's something we've worked on a lot, learning what makes them effective so that teachers have the support that they need and access to the learning that they, they want and need. And I think if you were like an, a, an administrator of some sort or a teacher leader, literacy leader in your school, um, you know, a literacy coach, academic coach, depending on what the title is and where you work, um, thinking about the characteristics that I just talked through is important when you're starting to set up these structures or possibilities or learning opportunities for the teachers that you work with, right? You want to have all these pieces in play so that it, it does work for teachers and, it, and they do feel that it's worthwhile so that there's more buy-in and it continues to grow. And that culture of, you know, lifelong learning is then becomes part of the school environment. And so maybe this would be a good time to note that as a, as a professional learning opportunity, these can be um, things where, where a school or district leadership is, is taking initiative on and, and providing and facilitating that uh, for their teachers. But it can also be just a teacher driven as, as well, that a teacher can seek out those professional learning opportunities as well. Um, and so maybe we'll, we'll kind of bounce back and forth between those two types of approaches, but uh if we're thinking about more of, of a within a school system, something that is structured uh, or, or designed by a, a literacy leadership team, um, that you talked about, there's three different models of, of professional learning, and uh, there's there's uh, models that they they have different trade offs among them. So uh, let's explain the the three models of professional learning opportunities. All right, let's do that. <laughs> so. Um, so the three models are training, educative, and then continuum. And so when we think about the training model, this is really where um, the topic is provided to the teachers. It's something that a district or county or principal feels is important. And here's some information that's going to be given. Um, and the content of the professional learning opportunity must be implemented with fidelity. So there's a specific content that will be then delivered in the classrooms, right? The educative is really where the topic is determined by the teacher's needs. Um, they support teachers through the reflective practice of implementing it. Um, and it encourages experimentation within the classroom with new topics, right? So there's there's more, much more flexibility here in, in what is being done because it's really teacher directed. So it's very specific. And then the third one is the continuum. And this is just a balance of having both training and educative in the, in the um, scope of professional learning opportunities. So um, there's support for teachers so that it, their learning is differentiated based on their needs. Um, and also there's some information given to teachers that they need to have as far as the district and counties go, right? Uh, so 
those are the three areas that you can kind of think through. The continuum works the best because it provides both, obviously, um, of the other two, and it's more flexible. But we have to think also, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in, in my next piece here, but um, about the culture of the school and how these sort of play out within the school system. So the next thing I wanted to just talk about was the um, trade-offs of these three. And I think you asked me a little bit about that in the previous question. So um, it's a really interesting question when you think about school leadership and these three models, right? So training is like that there's one message is provided and there's content and background information is given to teachers. It's seen, in, in my mind, I see that as more of a passive way of um, providing professional learning opportunities because the teachers are just like sitting there and listening and getting information. At least that's a visual I see in my head. And Amy, I'm just going to interrupt as I- Yeah, go right ahead. Yeah, um, that, that can be really difficult for teachers because we know that ownership in our learning and all learning is really essential. And when teachers are given initiatives in a top-down fashion, something that might not match their beliefs and their understandings and their, um, and what they want do in the classroom and what they know to work, then it can be counterproductive. So ownership and, and choice is super important. Absolutely. And so maybe, you know, thinking about these of, um, and I guess we can let you continue here in, the, in a second, Dr. Mord, with, the, with some of the trade-offs, but it's more a matter of, of when each one might might fit better for, you know, for example, if, if you're adopting a new software platform or something like that, then that might be more of a, of a training opportunity where it's a, it's a single, it's a, you know, sort of a single shot and it's the, you know, the, the district or the whatever leadership is just kind of has to go through it. So everyone's on the same page, but something more like, uh, you know, integrating greater depth of knowledge questioning into literacy instruction or how to include a higher volume of authentic connected text in literacy instruction. That might be something that leans more to the, the educative because has to has to be road tested. It has to be have a trial and error and, and a process to to make it really stick stick in the classroom. So maybe that's where more of the more of a, a win. We each one would be the best model rather than you know thinking which one is. It's, I guess it's it's meeting the targets of of what you're trying to do with which type of model would be best to do it with. Sure, it comes down to learning uh, on learning objective, right? Like, what is the objective of the professional learning opportunity? But I think what you explained there with your two examples really leans into that educative piece of it. And, um, you know, teachers feel more comfortable when we think about trade-offs for leadership and in, in which one to choose. And the educative model, the culture of the school supports, like you said, trial and error, and there's no repercussions. It's all about learning versus a gotcha situation, right? Like you're not doing it right. In an educative model, you you try it and see what makes sense. Um, but then that means you have to have the background knowledge as a teacher to know and the reflective practices to know what does make sense, right? So there's all these layers to this. And then the continuum, this is really, really where we start thinking about the culture. Uh, culture where teachers can build the content knowledge while simultaneously trying different techniques in the classroom. And it's really the most flexible system. Um, but again, all three of these come down to the idea of that 
the, the vibe or the culture of the school, the environment, and, and what is the expectation of these professional learning opportunities. Um, and so when you are a literacy leader and you're advocating for your teachers to learn something new and try something new, you got to think about how the positioning of this is within the context of your school system. So how does, you know, in, in doing the, the continuum model or trying to include both uh, educative and, and training opportunities that, you know, it sounds like the, the educative is a lot um, more challenging and rigorous to implement, but also it, it, it could lend itself to a much higher yield if, if done right. So it, maybe would that be a fair assessment of, of some of the, the promises and perils of the, the educative model? And then, and what, how can, how can it be done right in a way that isn't just, uh, you know, more training without any, any different outcomes in a way that really kind of helps stuff stick in the classroom? Well, I just saw a smirk come across Julie's face, so I'm going to let her take it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just, I think of the analogy of teaching in classrooms, you know, we, we want teachers to be critical thinkers. We want them to have, um, to use higher level thinking and to instill higher level thinking in their students. And that's just what the educative model is. You know, it's not just a delivery of here's something you should do. And here's, you know, tell you, I'm going to tell you how to do it. And you're going to do it just like I told you, it's actually a thinking model. And so I think that's the power behind it. And that's why the yield is so much greater. I would add in regard to time, you know, I, we all, everybody in education says we need more time, we need more time, right? We all need more time. But I think that when we think about what do we want to get the most, you know, bang for our buck here, do we want to just say we covered a lot of stuff in PLOs and we provided a lot of information and we discussed a lot of topics, or do we want teachers that understand and can really dig down deep and make those instructional shifts when necessary so that kids learn more? Is it more, again, this comes down, what's the goal? Is it more important to say we covered something or is it more important to say kids learned and mastered something? So that comes for me, that comes back to the culture of the school, right? And, and it comes down to, um, administrative messaging on that and leadership within the schools, the teachers to say, this is our stand. This is where we, this is what we know is good for kids, right? Time is always an issue. Um, and so when we take that off the table and say, okay, everybody's got a time issue, let's move it off the table and let's all focus in on what is the goal here. I think that helps us, um, maybe rationalize the work that's going to go into building that educative um, professional learning opportunity versus a training um, opportunity. That's fantastic um, direction for literacy folks that have the, that, you know, that, that have, that can take that direction within their, uh, within their organization. So uh, sort of on the, on the flip side, um, if, if, if you're a teacher that already has a, a, a system where you're teaching, where there's, there's rich and, and robust professional learning opportunities that are, that are facilitated for you by your, uh, you know, by your leadership, that's great. Um, but what if, what if a teacher doesn't work in a place that has such a luxury or, or just wants more? How can, how can a teacher engage in a self-directed um, professional learning regimen? So I think over the past year, we've learned that sometimes we have to 
pull out our own resources to, to make things happen, right? And so um, this, in, in the chapter here, we wrote about um, using Twitter, using podcasts, of course, and um, also an idea called the mastermind group. So I'm going to explain those a little bit more, but I also want to go back to the idea of using those professional organizations, right? Um, they provide a lot of professional learning opportunities, all of them do in a variety of ways. Um, and it's just a matter of knowing where to go to get the information that you're looking for. And so I think that's important to know. Um, but as far as what we talked about in the chapter, uh, I think Twitter can be used for this, like we use it for all sorts of things. Um, but you can follow the literacy researchers that you read about and that you are using their work in your classrooms. They are most literacy people are happy to talk <laughs> and provide more information. And so um, you can follow these people through Twitter or their blogs or those sorts of avenues. And that's done on your own time. It's very flexible. You take in the information you want, you reflect on it, you put it back out into your classroom the way you feel it needs to be done. Um, and so that's an important way to build individual content and even pedagogical and curricular knowledge, right? Podcasts are the same thing. Um, you get to hear people, you get to hear little anecdotes and Julie and I bantering back and forth on things, right? Um, and your other guests, but you get to hear the inflection and the excitement of the researchers that are talking about the work that they're doing because we're all here to make education better. We're all focusing on literacy education so that students can learn more and we're all here to support teachers. So finding a podcast um, that you enjoy is important because this is a, an easy way to gain additional um, information as a professional. And interestingly enough, one of the, um, the Carlisle that we quote in the, in the chapter, they found that for undergraduates, when podcasts were paired with their course readings, um, they did, they outperformed the students in the control group that just did the readings. And so we can see, we have research, you know, on that, that tells us just how influential this information in this avenue for learning can be. And then the third area that we talk about in the chapter is this concept of mastermind groups. And this is really um, just a structure for how um, a small group of individuals can get together and come together and learn professionally. So there's a specific structure that's in place. It's an hour a week, typically. Um, they say typically because it can vary a little bit, uh, but it's typically an hour. Uh, it's at the beginning. It's the small talk, how's everybody doing? Let's get together and see how what's going on. Then everybody just has a discussion around a reading or a podcast or a blog or something that they've all reviewed before coming that builds their content knowledge. And then the third aspect of that is it's uh, a piece called the hot seat. And that's where someone in the group brings a problem or an issue or a concern to the group for some problem, uh, problem talking through it to see, uh, how to handle it, what others have done in a similar situation, they problem solve it together. Um, and so that's just a different structure on how it can be done. Those can be done virtually, they can be done face to face. Um, there is no parameter around that. Yeah, and then I'll just add, you know, with the pandemic, um, we've shifted into webinars, you know, there are a lot of webinars are free and available on demand for teachers. And I've leaned on those for my students and for myself throughout the, um, the crazy time that we've been through, but um, most 
important, I think, to me, and Amy, you did talk about this, are those organizations, literacy organizations in particular for us. So I would like to just name a few if I'm allowed to do that. Yeah, um, please do that. Yeah, the International Literacy Association has standards for literacy instruction and for literacy leadership that are really important to the field and guide us in what we do. So that's been great. And there are a lot of um, resources that they offer through um, for members, but also free for non-members as well, if you don't have a membership. And Amy and I both sit on the board of directors for the Association of Literacy Educators and Researchers, ALER, and um, we have curated some resources for teachers and we have a journal for um, literacy educators and researchers. So those are some great resources that are provided. And the Literacy Research Association is another group that we belong to that has a great journal and some great resources for literacy researchers. So those are all really important for lifelong learners to just to go out, you know, and capture your own materials in that sort of way. You know, a group like specialized literacy professionals does book studies for their members. And so, you know, you could do that. They have a mini grant for, um, being able to write a grant for something that you want to do in your classroom, right? So there's other opportunities you can do as an individual um, by being a member of these organizations, state organizations as well, um, or the free information out there like ILA's work that Julie had mentioned and Aller and LRA as well. So I think, you know, as teachers become more aware of those organizations and the resources that they do have at their fingertips at this point, um, you should be able to get inf the information that you need. There is great resources out there and it's a matter of, of finding them. And I'm glad you brought up those because you know, a place like the, the ILA, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a major organization. It's, it's kind of the flagship leader, but within there, there's various subgroups you can join as, as well. And I think there's a lot of value in that and sort of finding your, your niche within the niche. And um, that helps connect you to people that are, uh, you know, that are like-minded, but also are, can connect you to those, those resources. And I, um, I, you know, my personal you know, sort of the way I find people that I, I'm interested in is I, when I'm listening to a presentation or, or reading someone and I, I see who they're talking about, and then I go in and investigate, you know, those folks, like you've, you've talked about Seth Parsons and, and, and Margaret Vaughn and Allison Ward Parsons, and those are folks we've had on the podcast. And those are, then that's, those, that's kind of actually how I got connected with you all was through reading the, the teaching uh, or the principles of effective literacy instruction book, or if you're, you're watching a webinar, if it's someone who's, knows their stuff, who's, who's really worth listening to, they're going to cite people and talk about people. And that's an excellent way to, to sort of gather your network. And I think that's relevant, especially on, on Twitter. <laughs> I think of course. two thirds of Twitter, I just think it's a dumpster fire. And then I think there's, you there's a have chunk to be a of it. Consumer, right? You have to yes. you can't take everything for face value. You have to pay attention to what you're using and thinking about. It's the same thing with any social media platform, that be Pinterest, Twitter, whatever it is, right? You have to think about what you're using and make sure that the content is accurate. But at least it gives you access to information without being tied to your school district or a university or, you know, those sorts of things. Um, those are all great things to be tied to. But if you don't have access to them at the moment, you can get, get the information that you need. 
Well, and those resources, those organizations rather, are super important because they do have standards. You know, they have standards of um, quality. And so International Literacy Association, ALR, um, LRA, if you read something from one of their journals, you can bet that it's high quality and accurate. Um, the Reading Teacher, for example, or Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy, those are important journals for teachers to read. They provide evidence-based practices that you can try out in your own classroom. And so, um, and then talk about with your colleagues so it's collaborative. And, and that's an important form of professional learning that teachers have, like Amy said, at their fingertips. You can go online, download an article, read it, and talk about it with your colleagues. And that's, that will, enhance and um, uh, better your instruction. So it's important. Well, that sort of professional learning shouldn't be diminished because it wasn't six professionals sitting in a room right. earning a stipend for learning about X, right? Like, so I think we, that's the other part of professional learning opportunities is that there is a variety of them and we have to acknowledge that they all make sense for us to learn as professionals. Absolutely. And maybe we can just circle back to podcasts for a second. I'm personally partial <laughs> to that one. Uh, but I, you know, one of the reasons I started this podcast was as I was going through my doc program, I just, I was amazed with what good research was going on out there that, and it was very pragmatic and it was very applicable to teachers. And I would kind of just, I don't know, I, I cringe, right? I would think, you know, how much of this is never going to see the light of day with the people where it could actually make the most difference, you know, with, and if, and unless you know how to navigate academia and, and know which journals and how to, I mean, it's its own, it's its own sort of culture, unless you know how to navigate that, you're not going to go and just be able to find a journal article that you, that you want. And it's probably behind a paywall anyway. And, um, and, and so that was sort of the impetus of, of this is let's, Let's try and, and take stuff that's fresh and that's new and that's current thinking and rather than wait for it to, you know, filter through and eventually get to teachers and get kind of maybe watered down along the way, let's, let's keep it with its original intent and, and get the folks who know the most about it talking about it in, in a way to help teachers know more so they can, they can do better in their classroom. Well, we've all heard that, you know, the adage of like the ivory tower and, and, but I'm in my classroom, right? Like we don't want that disconnect to be there anymore. And I think the, the different avenues of Twitter and podcasts and masterminds and webinars and associations with free um, resources on them, they're trying to bridge that divide. And if we can bridge that divide where it's not like I'm doing my research up here and you're in your classroom over there, like, let's get this stuff together so that it makes sense for the kids. That's what we're all here for anyway. Right. So um, I, I think as teachers become better at vetting the information that is out there. Like you were talking about Twitter. I, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of misinformation out there on social media, but, but as we learn to vet that and where to go to reference things, um, I think it makes good sense. It will help bridge that divide. Absolutely. So I, this is a question I, I'm really excited to hear your response to. Uh, so I, I, years ago, I read a book by Kay Anders Erickson, and, and he's done a lot of the psychological research on, on expertise and what it means to 
transition or be, go from novice to, to expert. And he, he brings up the example of just because someone's been had their driver's license for 20 years and they, they drive every single day, that doesn't mean that they're a better driver or just because someone types every day, we don't become better typists just by typing on our computer every day. And so um, how will a teacher know if they are getting better? How will they know if their expertise is, is truly developing that's a really big question, and, you know, and it makes yeah, Amy's laughing because um, that's a huge question. And I think about, first of all, metacognition, right? How important that is. And expert teachers are metacognitive as they teach. And that means that they're reflecting on their own teaching. They're evaluating what they've done and their own level of expertise and Ultimately, that's required of us in order to teach well and then to think about whether or not we're developing expertise. So that's a responsibility we have as teachers. But I think um, I'm going to go back to one of my, I, I'm a reading recovery trained teacher and the woman who trained me, Beryl Smith, was from New Zealand and her most often uh, quoted phrase was the proof is in the pudding. And so you watch your students and when your students are, are learning and students are developing and you have more students learning than you've had in the past, you know that you're developing expertise. And expert teachers that I've observed often will take some of the um, students who struggle the most and by the end of the school year, they'll be at or above grade level. And that happens to most of the students in their classroom almost every single year. And that is a measure of success. And so you know your expertise is developing when the proof is in the pudding and your students are learning. I would just add to that that um, Bransford and Schwartz talk a lot about the trajectory of expert, right? So again, like the idea of initial cert programs where we started this conversation of like, that's not the end of learning. You don't get to a point where you're expert and you're done, right? You, you can continually learn. Everyone's continually shooting towards that idea of expertise. And there isn't an end point where you can say, yep, I'm the expert now, right? Like that's not how that framework works. <laughs> and so um, in, in Fallon's work talks in professional development, he talks a lot about the idea of pressure and support for teachers as they learn. And so we give them a little bit of um, pressure, you know, everybody's doing learning this. So we're going to all learn it together. You want to stay with your colleagues on that. But we also give them the support of we're going to teach them and ride alongside of them and support them in their learning as they go. And this moves them along that trajectory towards expert. And I think when we think about those two concepts together, that sort of helps define like, how do you know when you're an expert or how is it developing? Because you're working with your group in developing those skills on that trajectory. I love my, my favorite quote of all time is, is by Vygotsky and, and he talks about development being a spiral and that at, at each revolution, you're, you're at the same spot, but you're, you're one revolution higher. And I, I think that's incredibly applicable for us as teachers because we always begin a new school year and hopefully we're, we're one revolution. We've, we've gone around the circle. It's the first day again, but we're, we're one higher. And, and I, I, um, I think that idea of expertise as being our, our target that will always be elusive, but that we can always trot along that path as a, 
it's a it's I mean it's very pragmatic. It reflects the reality, but it's a very you know, poetic way to to look at it as as well. Um, so, Dr. Morwood and Dr. Ankrum, thank you very much for joining us on the Teaching Literacy podcast. Um, the final question I wanted to ask both of you was, uh, what makes a great teacher? Okay, I'll go first, Amy. All right. Say, um, in my mind, what makes a great teacher, and I think what research tells us too, is a dedication to learners, right? So you're dedicated to your craft and your art and the science of teaching. You have to love teaching and have a true passion because it's not an easy job. It's not for the faint at heart, but if you love it and if you commit yourself to lifelong learning and, and um, improving yourself over time and improving your teaching, you're gonna be a great teacher. So I would agree with everything Julie said there, but I would just add that it's really a love of learning not just for your students, but for yourself, right? You want to continue to learn and grow and, and find different things that you're interested in that you can then share with your students. And so I would make it a little bit broader statement or broaden Julie's statement even further to say it's a love of learning in addition to the passion and dedication that's needed uh, for this field. Excellent. Dr. Amy Morin and Dr. Julie Ingram, thank you for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thanks, Jake. Thanks so much. Wow, a big thank you to Dr. Julie Ingram and Dr. Amy Morwood. They're very gracious with their time to join me on the show and talk about uh, teachers as lifelong learners. I, I hope you gleaned a lot from their conversation. Uh, two of the things I wanna highlight, the first thing I wanna highlight is this notion of, of expertise, of what it means to, to go and transition from someone who is a novice to someone who is an expert. And I think the idea around expertise is that it, it only comes with experience but experience in and of itself is not enough. Um, we have to attach our ongoing experience with learning and with feedback and with reflection and with good old fashioned critical thinking. And that's how we can take our expertise to the next level and how we continue, continue to grow and develop. And I think that that notion of you know, just because I've been driving uh, since I was 16 doesn't mean I'm a better driver. The, I think the same thing can be applied for us in the classroom that just because we're teaching, we are gonna get better over time. I, I, I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna suggest that, but I do wanna say that our development can be accelerated over time by becoming a lifelong learner and really seeking out great resources to help us become better thinkers and better decision makers in the classroom. And similarly, my second set is I wanna talk about the types of knowledge that we need to become expert. That idea of content knowledge, pedagogical knowledge and curricular knowledge, that framework is so critical. And when I read that, I was like, oh, yes, that explains it really, really well. Uh, if we're gonna become expert teachers, we, we have to know the content. We have to know what we're teaching. In other words, if we're teaching uh, you know, really younger grades, we, we have to know the, how phonemic awareness works, like what's really going on in the brain with something like phonemic awareness. Or we have to really know how language works and why having a rich oral language environment matters so much for those younger kiddos and, and all of our kiddos, by the way. Or if we're in the upper grades, we have to know how texts are organized and structured. We have to know um, what type of metacognition is required for us to make sense of text. And we have to know the types of background knowledge and how background knowledge influences 
text comprehension. So we have to know the content, but we also have to know the pedagogy. We have to know how can we teach it? How can we teach the content? How can we teach it in a way that students can actually learn it, in a way that it's accessible, in a way that it's time efficient, and that for our struggling students that we can actually accelerate their learning. And that's a tall order. The, the pedagogical one is, is, is tricky and it's nuanced, but it's very, very doable. And the last one is the curriculum. Uh, we have to know our standards of where students are coming from and where they're going. And if we have specific curricula that are assigned to us to teach, we have to know that. And I think that's such an important key because when we understand the curriculum, when we see the curriculum, we can see how it's structuring in the content and the pedagogy, and then we can adjust and adapt accordingly. But it really takes all three of those knowledge. If I only have curricular knowledge, but I'm absent pedagogical knowledge or content knowledge, it's going to be hard for me to give the students the support I need. And, and similarly, if I, if I know something of, if I know some pedagogy, I know how to teach really effectively, but I'm lacking in the content, but I have my curriculum, there might be some instruction going on, but it's, it's going to be inhibited. And so uh, my, me personally, in, in my professional learning, my ongoing lifelong learning, I want to continue to become better in each of those three areas. I want to understand the curriculum better. I want to understand the content better. And I want to understand the pedagogy better. And, and I invite you to go along that same path of think of your professional learning in those three areas and go out and seek and find resources that are going to help you do that. That's all I have for this episode. Thank you very much for listening to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Um, our listenership has over doubled just since January in the last nine months. So thank you. I know that folks out there are sharing this podcast with, with colleagues. I know that uh, folks out there are searching for this podcast and finding it. So uh, please make sure to uh, share this podcast with a colleague, and you can feel free to leave a review if you'd like as well. Um, thank you very much again for listening, and until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.